0: Here we go. You are listening to Wednesday's Bible study on Law and Gospel on this September the 22nd in the year of our Lord, 2021. I'm Pastor Tom Baker, and I'm here to talk to you about an important issue. Was Jesus put to shame? Now, in Isaiah 50... It talks about Jesus Christ. And what's interesting about Isaiah chapter 50 is that there is information about the upcoming crucifixion. In verse 5, The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back. To those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Now, verse 6 says that he hid not his face from disgrace and spitting. And verse 7 says, I know I shall not be put to shame. Now, how can we understand that? Because wasn't it a shameful thing to be crucified? So what does Jesus mean that he will not be put to shame? That's actually the translation from the ESV, English Standard Version. I know I will not be put to shame. But a more accurate translation of this verse is, therefore, I will not suffer myself to be overcome by the shame. Now, that's quite a difference. What does that mean? You see, anytime we are put to shame, we often rebel against that. We may try to get even with a person who has put us to shame because of what they have said against us or whatever. Jesus not only did not get even, he did not permit himself to be overcome by the shame, but he took the shame fully upon himself by dying on the cross. We need to understand Jesus was a human being. And therefore, as in all human beings, shame has the tendency to divert us from our course. Jesus, in his humanity, felt a natural human shrinking from pain and suffering. And it was quite possible that it constituted a temptation. You know, we often get the idea Jesus was tempted once, and that was by, of course, Satan in the wilderness. But only three temptations are mentioned. There were more during those 40 days. But that temptation continued throughout his life. Remember, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, Satan used the disciples to tempt Jesus. Peter had cut off the ear of the high priest's servant, Malchus, and therefore Jesus put the ear back on and said, I could bring a legion of angels down if I so desired. There he was being tempted again by Satan to no longer suffer. The tempter addresses himself to your natural desires. He did that with Jesus. Remember, in the wilderness, he first of all tempted him with physical gratification. Turn these rocks into bread. And then he said he could secure his kingdom by an easier method if he simply would jump down from the top of the temple. All these will I give thee if this temptation was with Jesus all through his life and most insistent at its close. The shadow of the cross stretched along his path from its beginning. But it is to be remembered that his will was still not reluctant to follow what the Father had requested of him, and that no rebellious desires had escaped from its control or needed to be reduced. I was not rebellious. There's no doubt that his face, as Luke 9:51 says, was like a flint. That's a piece of metal that cannot be bent or moved. Steadily, he said his face. The, the story of the Gospels in its history gives us the impression of a life steadfast in its great resolve. There's no traces in his life of ever faltering in his purpose. None did he ever suffer himself to be diverted from it. There was no parenthesis, no digressions. And there are no blunders either. But what a contrast the life of Jesus was to all other lives. In Mark's gospel, which is the gospel of the servant, he is full of energy and of this inflexible resolve. He himself says, I must be about my father's business. or. I must work the works of my father while it is day. He steadfastly, it says, set his face to go to Jerusalem. And even the disciples could not understand his prophecies that he would be going to Jerusalem, be taken by his enemies, be crucified, and he would die. This is an inflexible resolve on the part of Jesus. And yet, it is coupled with a gentleness so obvious in his character because look how he cared for the people. He fed 5,000 who were hungry who still did not understand him, thinking he was going to be the king of bread. We have in Jesus Christ the highest active firmness which presses on to its goal, and it will not be diverted by anything. And in that resolved will, we see a gentle heart in perfect accord to his Father's will. That's not found in us as human beings. Yes, we wish we could have a perfect accord with the Father, but each and every day we sin, if not by deed, by thought, or by word. Jesus Christ was at every moment able to give his whole sympathy to all who needed it, to take in all that lay around him. And that concentration of himself on his work showed how perfect he was. Not only was Christ's firmness that of a fixed will and a most willing heart and loving heart, but that fixed will came because he was both God and man. The very compassion and pity of his nature led to that resolved continuance in his path of redeeming love, though suffering and mockery waited for him at each turn. There's no doubt, as Jesus says in Isaiah, The Lord God helps me. That's verse 9 of chapter 50. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The mouth, moth, will eat them up. Now, in Jesus, we also can say, God Is near me. Who will declare me guilty? Well, you would think that a lot of people could declare you guilty. The more they get to know you, perhaps the more they realize what a sinner you are. And there's no doubt that they could say, well, you're guilty, because Satan does that all the time to you. You're guilty of this sin or that sin. And that faith that Jesus had, that led to his heroic resistance and immovable resolution. That confidence of divine help from God was indeed based upon a consciousness of obedience. He was really resolute in all that he did. Some time ago, I received an email from an individual that I think Psalm 50 would be very helpful. It reads as follows. Hi, Pastor Baker. I am 21 years old. I have listened to your law gospel seminars and appreciate your care For God's sheep. I'm writing, however, because I need forgiveness. I am too ashamed to confess to my pastor here. I am afraid of the consequences of my sin, and I need to talk to someone. I am writing you first because I'm not even sure if this is possible. I would like to talk to you personally if I could. Please tell me if this is possible. I hate being separated from God. I have lived pretending for too many years now. Please, if this is in any way possible, tell me. I can give you my phone, and this is my number, if it is possible This will work. Thank you very much. Well, I often ask for phone numbers and emails because I rarely respond to an email sent to law and gospel with an email. And that's because it's very difficult in an email to answer a question. A lot of times... I'm not really sure what the question is. It appears that this individual who is writing is concerned that he is not forgiven because he has not been told he is forgiven. He has not listened to his pastor because he's too ashamed to confess even to his pastor. Now, how can I respond to that? Well, I did respond by calling him. I won't give you all the details of our conversation, but it lasted longer than an email would have worked. There was no doubt that he was under the impression that his sins personally were not forgiven unless someone said the absolution to him, namely another pastor, if not his own. Now, there's no doubt in a worship service that the congregation confesses their sins. I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto thee all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended thee. But then it continues, but I'm justly sorry and seek out that forgiveness. The pastor says, upon this your confession, I by virtue of my office, as a called and ordained servant of the word, announce the grace of God to you. And in the stead, and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. Now this 21-year-old recognized he needed to hear those words personally from a pastor. But that is not necessary in order that his sin be forgiven. Because in the worship service, as I said, the absolution, the pastor says, is upon this your confession. If he attends... A proper Reformation Lutheran worship service, he will hear the pastor say to him, I forgive your sins. But the pastor makes clear he is not forgiving sins, but he is the voice of Jesus Christ. By his authority, I therefore forgive your sins. Yes, it may help someone to receive personal forgiveness over his personal sins, but that is not necessary. Remember the cross of Christ. What was one of the words that are recorded in the Scripture? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Now, when did that forgiveness take place? That forgiveness took place immediately. While Jesus was still on the cross, those people were forgiven, even those who were unbelievers. We call this objective justification. And that simply means that did Jesus ever pay for your sin? as an unbeliever and the answer is yes when he died on the cross he died for all the sins and for whom was he dying one of the best known pra- passages is john 3:16 for god so loved the what believers the church no for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And the world includes both believers and unbelievers. Objective justification is the good news that your sins have been forgiven at the cross of Christ. Now, why doesn't everyone go to heaven? We've answered that question. That gets into subjective justification, where... A person hears the gospel and does not reject the gift of the forgiveness of sins. It's hard to imagine. But those people who are not going to heaven are those who have rejected the forgiveness that is freely given by Jesus Christ. That is because they do not believe the promises of the gospel. But this email writer who's 21 years old, he does believe the promises of the gospel. He says, I need forgiveness. But then jumps to the idea that he's too ashamed to confess to my pastor here. I am afraid of the consequences of my sin. See, that's the devil talking that even though Christ has died on the cross, even though you're sorrowful over your sin, you still could have consequences of eternal damnation. That is a lie from Satan. If you are contrite over your sin and you believe in Jesus Christ, then you are mistaken to think that you need a personal, individual tell you that you are forgiven no jesus tells you you are forgiven that's why it is important to attend a worship service because you may be embarrassed to tell anyone about your specific sin but you're not too embarrassed to confess it to jesus in your private confession. And when you do that, verse 8 of Isaiah, he who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Nobody can contend with you, including the devil. Let us stand up together. That's Jesus talking to you. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. And the Lord God for us is the entire trinity. In other words, who will declare me guilty? The only ones who declare me guilty are those who want to give the impression that I have not been forgiven. But that forgiveness has taken place. It took place on the cross of Christ. Therefore, all of my adversaries, Jesus says in verse 9, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. There's nothing to be concerned about it. Verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 50 concludes, "Who among you fears the Lord and the, bo- the voice of his, and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light, And it seems to me that's kind of describing the person with this email, who feels that he is going to have to suffer the consequences of a sin because he has not heard another pastor forgive him. He's walking in darkness and is confused. What does verse 10 end with? Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. And his God forgives all who believe in Jesus Christ. They may never have even heard the absolution from a pastor, but as they read Scripture, they can be assured that their sins have been forgiven. In fact, what does that mean? It means that God no longer holds them accountable for their sins. Because he held his son accountable by his suffering and death on the cross. And you just don't need to read the New Testament books in order to figure that out. It's throughout the Old Testament books, beginning with Adam and Eve, that a promise is made that through the seed of Eve will come the Savior, who will crush the head of Satan, even though Satan will bruise his heel, referring to the crucifixion. But when you crush the head of a serpent, it is put to death. So for this 21-year-old young man, his sins have been forgiven. He has been put to death in regard to his sins, and has a new life in Jesus Christ. And all of this is found even in the Old Testament books, because the Holy Spirit works through both prophets and the apostles. That's really good news. Jesus was not put to shame because Jesus did not react negatively I'm Tom Baker Uh, tomorrow with Wes Reimnitz we're going to explain to you a denomination that ought not be considered Christian any longer because of what it teaches that's on tomorrow's long gospel until then God bless you. Listen to Law and Gospel each weekday morning at 930 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law and Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962.